We come now to the reading of the scriptures, and I invite your reverent attention to Isaiah chapter 38, verses 9 to 20. Isaiah 38, verses 9 to 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery, I said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, thou dost make an end of me. I composed my soul until morning, like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, thou dost make an end of me. Like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. O Lord, I am oppressed, be my security. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I shall wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health, and let me live. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. It is thou who hast kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. For Sheol cannot thank thee, death cannot praise thee. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for thy faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to thee, as I do today. A father tells his sons about thy faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. So we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, our focus this morning is on a biography. There's a great, great quote by Phillips Brooks who wrote A Little Town of Bethlehem about what makes for a good biography. Uh, he said, two values of a marked and well-depicted life appear is a value first because it is exceptional and second because it is representative. He says, every good story of a life, therefore, sets before those who read or hear it something which is imitable and something which is incapable of imitation. So what I hope to do this morning is measure up uh, to that um, standard for holding forth a biography in such a way that we will see together what is uh, exceptional uh, in the life of Hezekiah and also that which is representative and which we can imitate. But stepping into a passage uh, like this morning, uh, at the point where King Hezekiah is uh, reflecting on his terminal illness, 
is something like opening up a book and reading the epilogue first. Uh, it might make sense to you, but you will have missed out on all of the rising drama and the tension and the suspense of knowing what has brought uh, the hero or the heroine into and then out of uh, dire straits. Uh, you would miss out on all that makes the story memorable in its entirety. So let me spend some time first uh, kind of catching you up if you haven't been in Isaiah lately uh, so that you uh, might know what has gone before uh, this passage regarding Hezekiah, uh, the king who trusted in and held fast to and would not stop following the Lord, as is said of him in 1 Kings 18. Uh, by the way, what we know about Hezekiah is recorded primarily in three uh, places, and you might want to just put tabs there. We'll maybe go back and forth a bit. 2 Kings chapter 18 to 20, 2 Chronicles uh, chapters 29 to 32, and then Isaiah chapters 36 to 39. So we begin with uh, Hezekiah's early days when his father, King Ahaz, was king of Judah in the divided nation of Israel. The world powers of that day were Assyria to the north, Philistia uh, to the west, Egypt to the south, and a uh, rising kingdom uh, to the east, Babylon. Hezekiah was a prince and co-regent of Judah when Assyria was invaded and conquered uh, the northern kingdom, at least in Israel in 722 B.C. The Assyrians who uh, did that fought a, uh, a long campaign, I think about three years against the northern kingdom, until finally Samaria fell uh, to Assyria. And the Assyrian king uh, took captive the people uh, of the northern tribes, and he carried them off into captivity. Uh, only one tribe was left. The tribe of Judah was left standing. And Hezekiah saw it all happen. Now Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, uh, was, according to Second Chronicles 28, a wicked king. He did not do right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. The chronicler records, 2 Chronicles 28, that he made metal images for the Baals, foreign gods, and he burned his sons as offerings. According to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel in the promised land. 2 Chronicles 28, verses 22 to 27, say of him that in the time of his distress he became yet more unfaithful to the Lord, this same King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him. Because he said to himself, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to their gods that they would help me. But they were the ruin of him, it says, and of all Israel. 
And it goes on to say, And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, and he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking the uh, Lord to anger the, the God of his fathers, And then it says, And Ahaz slept with his fathers. He died. And they buried him in the city of Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And then it says, And his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. So Hezekiah, the young prince, did not grow up learning the ways of faith and the righteous running of a nation from his father. No, he grew up in the shadow of a faithless father and a faithless king, this godless man, Ahaz, who had no regard for the God of Israel. But perhaps young Hezekiah learned something of how to rule well from his grandfather, Jotham. We don't know a lot about Jotham, but the writers of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles do say of him that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, Uh, though he did not remove the high places, and so the people still followed corrupt practices. But it says, Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways uh, before the Lord his God. So how did young Hezekiah fare as a king, and how did the people fare under him? Well, he became the greatest king of Judah. This is from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 3 to 7. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David, his father, had done, he removed the high places and broke the altars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Boy, what a... What a uh, testimony that is to how people can make uh, idols of relics. goes on to say that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him, all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Okay, the greatest king in Judah, in the divided kingdom during that time. Why? For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. And wherever he went out, he prospered. So he had a good start. Foreshadowing what Christ would do, uh, Hezekiah cleansed the temple. Remember, his father had shut the doors of the temple. And he restored temple worship. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles 29. And then he reinstituted the celebration of the Passover. You think about that, how important uh, the celebration of the Passover was to the nation of Israel and the remembrance of everything that God had done for them in bringing them up out of captivity. You recall uh, perhaps the words of Exodus uh, 
uh, 3, that God heard their groanings and he came down for them and he brought them out and he instituted uh, the Passover as a memorial celebration of what God had done. But all that had been pushed aside uh, by evil kings. And Hezekiah steps forward to cleanse the temple, to gather the Levites again, and make everything possible for this renewed celebration of the Passover. Now he did something else quite remarkable. He invited everyone from the nation, from the northern tribe that had separated from the tribe of Judah back when Solomon and then his son, Rehoboam, died. He called them all to come celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. This is 2 Chronicles 30, verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel, all Israel and Judah, and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's the result of all these reforms for Hezekiah and the people at 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 25 to 27. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to God's holy habitation in heaven. And why was there such joy and God-pleasing worship that day? I think primarily because it had been close to 200 years that all the nation of Israel had gathered together to celebrate the Passover. And there was one king, Hezekiah. Because until that time, there was a divided nation. There was another king in the northern kingdom. And those people did not... Uh, interact, certainly in the matters of faith and in celebrating the Passover. But Hezekiah brought it to pass. He was a great king in Judah. Well, the day did not last, but it was a foreshadow of a reunited kingdom under Jesus Christ, the great Messiah King. So what a remarkable beginning to Hezekiah's reign. He comes out of a, the dark shadow of his uh, father and he met the challenges of reforming the spiritual decay of the nation. But what came next for Hezekiah? This is 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1. After these things, it says, and after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. And he laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. Now, 
we almost recoil at that after such faithfulness that the next important event in the life of Hezekiah as king, as recorded in the Chronicles narrative, is that the God of providence would send this mighty foe to lay siege to the land of Jerusalem and the city which God loved, Jerusalem. And so we have to stop here and think about this. And I think we have to acknowledge this, that our times are in God's hands. We live in the providence of God, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, whose ways are not our ways. God has his reasons for bringing mighty trials upon faithful men and women and children. And he doesn't owe us an account of what he does or why he does it. This is part of the lesson that Hezekiah will learn and that we'll think about. It's enough to know that God does nothing arbitrarily. There are divine purposes behind every act of providence, purposes to display his glory, and a display of glory in mighty ways as he raises up the children of faith from the ash heap and he brings down the sons of disobedience from their high places. And this is precisely how the story will unfold for uh, uh, the king of Assyria and the Assyrian invasion and how it will play out for Hezekiah. There will be a great reversal for both. So I think that's enough background to bring us now to Isaiah 38, which begins by saying, in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. We don't know how long Hezekiah suffered under this illness, but we know from other passages that he was suffering from a painful boil. And added to the physical pain surely must have been uh, the emotional and mental strain of the Assyrian invasion uh, upon the land. And truly, I think we could say of King Hezekiah what Shakespeare immortalized in the line, uneasy rest the head that wears the crown. Well, we don't know how long his illness lasted, but we know his thoughts as he lay uh, on his sickbed. What were the thoughts of this dying king? Well, perhaps initially he had hopes of uh, recovering his health, but those hopes were dashed by Isaiah and by these words. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and you shall not recover. Isaiah 38, verse 3 says, Hezekiah then wept bitterly. Literally, he wept with great weeping. I wonder, have you ever wept like that? If you have, you have an idea of how Hezekiah wept that day. 
If you have not known weeping like this, uh, then hear this. Someday you will. Because the Bible says there is a time to weep as there is a time to laugh. And there is a time to mourn as there is a time to dance. Perhaps the story of Hezekiah will help prepare you uh, for that day of weeping. Well, in his bitter weeping, Hezekiah thought to himself, I must depart this world in the middays of my life. I will not see old age. Worse than that, I will not see the Lord anymore in the land of the living. I must leave this world. My dwelling is being pulled up like a shepherd pulling up the stakes of his tent and like a weaver that rolls up his fabric. I'm cut off from the loom. And so like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. And like a dove, I moan. But those mournful thoughts uh, were not the sum and substance of what he was thinking to himself on his sickbed. Where else did his thoughts turn? Well, they turned to the Lord, and he prayed. Verse 2 of chapter 38, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember me. Remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Verse 14, uh, he turns his eyes toward heaven. O Lord, I am oppressed. Uh, Be my security and my pledge of safety. Well, that is uh, wisdom to do that. Wisdom from uh, the Proverbs. And by the way, Hezekiah was a man who studied the Proverbs. In fact, if you go to Proverbs 25, it says that he he, uh, instructed some of the men of his kingdom to gather even more of the Proverbs of Solomon to add to the recorded collection of Proverbs. So he was a man who studied the wisdom of the Proverbs. And of course, Proverbs is all about giving you skill for living. And here is Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous one into it, and are safe. And so, in wisdom, in hearing the word, Hezekiah goes to the Lord in prayer and prays, O Lord, remember me, and be my security in all of this, and my safety. Well, there is another and perhaps chief part of Hezekiah's thoughts on the days of his sickness. And it was the thought of God's sovereignty over his illness and his circumstances. Verse 12, you'll notice that it is not Hezekiah that severed his thread from the loom, but rather he, speaking of the Lord, he cuts me off from my loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Verse 13, like a lion, he breaks all my bones from day to night. You bring me to an end. And here now comes a turning point in Hezekiah's lament. The turn comes, I think, because Hezekiah returns 
excuse me, Isaiah returns to Hezekiah to say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you. And this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has promised. Remember, when God gives out his word, it accomplishes every purpose wherein he sends it. He is the God of the unfailing word. And this is a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. And so the sun turned back on the dial ten steps by which it declined. That's in Isaiah uh, 38. Isaiah leaves out part of the account of what happened in his narrative. But if you go to 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, we read this. There were, uh, uh, here Hezekiah will ask for a sign, okay? That the Lord will do these things. And Isaiah said, the Lord will make the sun go forward ten steps on the dial. And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let it go back ten steps. And so Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the sun's shadow back ten steps on the dial. Well, if you think about it, that is a very gracious gift uh, to Hezekiah as a sign. In fact, I think it was the perfect sign for him. It was the sign of a great reversal of the sun's trajectory, foreshadowing a great reversal in his circumstances. And he did experience a great reversal and turn of events, for the Lord fulfilled the first promise to Hezekiah and healed him of his sickness. But if I understand the movement of this story right, uh, there is a turning point in Hezekiah's understanding of God which comes after hearing these words, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and you shall not recover. I think perhaps until that point when God speaks, Hezekiah has been speaking. Verse 10, I said this. Verse 11, I said that. And then God speaks. This seems to me to be much like uh, the book of Job, with Job speaking one thing and then another uh, to God, to his friends. He's speaking until... God speaks to him. And then what is there left for Job to say? And only this, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, if you compare those words of Job with Hezekiah in verse 15, Hezekiah says, What shall I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. It sounds to me like an echo of Job's words, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then Hezekiah says, I will walk slowly. I think that means humbly all the years of my life because of this anguish of soul. Echoing, I think, Job's, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, both men, Hezekiah and Job, went through uh, severe trials, probably such that we might never know. But what became uh, severe trials for them were turned to severe mercies for them. Because both men will have futures beyond their trials, and both would go forward with a more mature faith of God. What shall I say before the Lord in the midst of adversity? Perhaps it's just best to say nothing, except to acknowledge that God is in the midst of all my hardships, working everything for reasons beyond what I can understand for my good and my welfare. He owes me no explanation beyond that promise to work all things for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Solomon put it well in Ecclesiastes 7, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. So man may not find out anything that will be after him. You do not know what a day will bring. But know this. It is God that brings the day to you. Whether it is a day of pleasant, smiling sunshine, a day of pleasant providences, or a day of severe trial and testing and adversity and distress, they're both of God. That's what the Scriptures say. Charles Bridges, in his devotional commentary on this passage of Ecclesiastes, said, What God has done, He has done best. He has indeed kept His own time and used His own means, not ours. But he has made us to see in the end that his time and his means were better than ours. Whatever seems to oppose or perplex, remember, it is our Father's work. And let us learn to take a cheerful view of that lot, which he has ordained solely for our happiness, and which under his guidance will turn to the best account. And so Hezekiah resigns himself to God's providence in his illness, but he also placed himself in God's hand and God's pledge to be his place of safety and his security as he runs to him in faith. And then I think comes the word of the Lord. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add these 15 years to your life, and I'll deliver you in this city from the hand of Assyria. Now to this, Hezekiah, revived in spirit, says, O oh Lord, <laughs> By these things men live, and in all these things 
my spirit finds life. Now, when a king says, by these things men live, what should we do? <laughs> we should gather near uh, to the king and hear what he says to say, by which things men must live. Because we all want to know what are the important things of life, right? So about a year ago, I was opening a book, um, and I found in this book an old uh, manuscript of a, of a Bible lesson that my grandfather taught. It was on this very passage from Hezekiah. And he draws out from this text by what things men live. I've pondered this uh, often by grandfather's uh, lesson because this past year has been uh, pretty hard for us, our family, our business. Uh, so uh, much of what I'll share with you now was taken from his notes. My grandfather was a teacher in the public schools, and he was an astute teacher. So when he draws three things from this story by which we live, he astutely proposed them, not as things we can live with, but as things we cannot live without. Okay, Because it's easy to gather lots of things that we can live with, uh, but we really need to understand what are the things we cannot live without. So he says the first thing we cannot live without is God. We cannot live without God. It's very easy for a king or anyone really to think that he can live without God, especially when things are going well, surrounded by wealth and luxury and by the world's standards. We are all kings and queens in terms of standard of living and luxury. But then we learn to depend on those things and not on God. As Hezekiah, in a moment of weakness, wondered by what strength he would prevail over the king of Assyria. But the crisis brought uh, Hezekiah to the point where he learned by experience that he could not live without God's help. He knew already that, but the crisis and the anguish that he experienced worked together to seal the knowledge for him in the crucible of experience. Behold, said Hezekiah, it was for my welfare that I had uh, this great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life. When faced with death, Hezekiah learned, I mean, he really learned by experience, like Job learned in his experience, that the ultimate reality of life is in God, and the ultimate comfort in all of our distresses are God's presence and his promises. That's the value of a life crisis. The second thing, we cannot live without God's forgiveness. Recall Hezekiah's words, In love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. How were his sins forgiven? He was so sick he could not go to the house of the Lord and offer the sacrifices. I think I know how he was saved. 
Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Those things. And surely Hezekiah had a broken spirit now and a contrite heart as he prayed to God and wept in tears. I think godly tears of repentance. And God heard those prayers. And he put all of his sins behind his back. Hezekiah learned that God is the primary necessity of life and that only God could give him a fresh start. Only God can forgive, and every act of forgiveness is a fresh start in life. This is from my grandfather. We simply cannot go on day after day adding to our ball of tangled tensions without reckoning with the fact that we need a soul washing now and then. This comes, he said, when we strike the impossibility of being able to go on and we stumble to our knees at the throne of grace and we say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And God comes and says to us, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. O Lord, he said, by these things we live. Now the third thing. He said, we cannot live without a thankful heart. Again, recall what Hezekiah said, the living, it's the living that thank you as I am doing this day. And so I ask you, are you a thankful person? How many times did you thank somebody this past week? How many times did you rise up early or at the close of the day and thank the Lord for every blessing he has given you? On his way to Jerusalem to be the sacrificial lamb for the sin of the world, Jesus entered a village between Samaria and Galilee. He was met by ten lepers that day. They all lifted up their voices to him and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy upon us. That day, all ten were cleansed. But Luke reports that only one, one returned to give thanks to the Lord falling at Jesus' feet to thank him for what he had done. Well, we should imitate that, don't you think? That's representative of Hezekiah's life. That's something we can do and imitate. We should thank God every day, whatever the day brings, pleasant providences, adversity, and find some reason to thank God. I think of Corey Ten Boom, who was able to thank God for the fleas in a Nazi concentration camp. You know why she thanked God for the fleas? Because it gave them a place where the Nazi uh, guards would not enter because of the fleas. And there, she and her sister could read the Bible and worship God. They gave thanks that God sent those fleas for them. Oh, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. So those are the three things by which we live from my grandfather's lesson. But I would like to go beyond that and add a fourth thing that I think is essential for life, and that is hope. In verse 17, Hezekiah thanked God for the bitter things that God turned for Hezekiah's welfare, and he thanked that God in love delivered his life from the pit of destruction. Literally, it is the pit of nothingness. 
Our English uh, translation uh, goes on, to say, you know, translates, you've turned this all for what? My welfare. Uh, the Hebrew word there is shalom. You turned it for my shalom. And that word means just much more than welfare itself. It means wholeness and completeness and peace and harmony and tranquility and security and prosperity. That's what Hezekiah said that God did for him and the benefits and the blessing of all the adversity he went through. Apart from God, there is nothingness. That is the absence of life, but with God there is everything. And it is the fullness of life in shalom. In this restored life of his, Hezekiah says that he has the hope of God's faithfulness. He says there's no hope in that pit of nothingness. Or excuse me, he had hope in God's faithfulness. right? Because in the pit of nothingness, there's no hope. But having been saved from that pit, Hezekiah then may continue to live among those who have hope in God. Listen to this hope in the last verse, verse 20. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music all the days of our lives in the house of the Lord. I hear echoes of Psalm 23 there, as if Hezekiah is saying, I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So... I hope you can see through all of this that Hezekiah was an exceptional man, but there was much in his life that we may resemble and imitate. One last observation and then we're done. Look again at verse 19. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Fathers, one of the best things you can do for your children and your grandchildren is to make known God's faithfulness to them. And how do you do that? Well, you tell them. You raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but you tell them of God's faithfulness. And you do that by bringing them into your world. So often we talk, and rightly so, about stepping into your child's world to know what's going on in their lives, what are their concerns, but bring them into your world, too. Let them know the trials that you're going through. And let them know in all these things we live trusting in God's faithfulness. Okay? Make it known to them. So I can say um, I'm thankful for my grandfather. I have his notes that declare the faithfulness of God. I have my father, my mother, who's here. I can bless God for her. Um, but I bid to do the same thing for my children, and you should too. Perhaps you didn't have parents or grandparents that made it known to you of God's faithfulness. Okay, but you can make it known to your children and to your grandchildren. Well, today is the first Sunday of the month. It's the month or the, the first week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And there is immediate application of this lesson now. Application of Hezekiah's song for the occasion of the Lord's Supper. It is a time, the Lord's Supper, to remember our continual need of God in our lives. A time to reflect on our sin and God's forgiveness. A time to rejoice and thank God for all of His blessings. And a time to renew and declare our hope in God's faithfulness.
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul says of the Lord's Supper, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So those three words, until he comes, is the hope of God's faithfulness until he comes. Okay, um, yeah. we turn now to the uh, Lord's table. Our table is uh, set before you as an invitation to Christ's table. Okay, It's not Grace Bible's table. So if you are of the faith, child of grace and of the promise, you're welcome to partake of this, um, this great event. Um, we have uh, the scriptural warrant. Paul already says that as often as we do this, uh, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ instituted it on the night of his betrayal. And so here's the invitation to come and uh, enjoy all of the spiritual benefits and blessings of the Lord's Supper. First, the bread uh, for the support of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have. Uh, he sent them living bread which came down from heaven, this namely Jesus, who nourishes and sustains our life uh, as believers when we um, partake of him by faith in the bread. As the bread is broken and served to you, I invite you to engage the Lord in the things that you have heard this morning before him. Paul gave a wonderful uh, a prayer and leading of us in a time of confession, but you may need to do that again. But also rejoice in all the things that God has done for us. And I ask you to hold the bread until we're all served because this is an act of the, of the church. We do it together to signify our union in Christ. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this meal. We thank you for uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came down from heaven for us and for our salvation, the bread of life, uh, the eternal word. We thank you for this, this sacrament which strengthens and nourishes us because the journey is hard, we grow weary, and we need spiritual strength. Thank you for this bread, and we offer our thanks in the name of the Son. Amen. Uh, from the Belgic Confession of Faith, Christ testifies to us that as certainly as we take and hold the sacrament in our hand and eat and drink it with our mouths, by which our physical life is sustained, so certainly do we by faith, as the hand and mouth of our souls, the body and the blood of Christ, our only Savior, in our souls for our spiritual life. Um, as you know, in the center of the service is wine and the periphery is grape juice, so you're free to uh, take uh, as your conscience dictates uh, regarding uh, the cup. Well, please join me in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you for this celebration. Thank you for this cup that is sweet and a sweet aroma. Uh, we remember that Christ drank the bitter cup for us so that we don't have to. And we may enjoy this, uh, again, a sweet cup of wine, the fruit of the vine. And we look forward to the day when we will drink it with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day, grant us peace 
and strengthen us with this cup in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming and worshiping and celebrating the Lord's table with us today. Welcome to any guests if they are here. We are glad you are here and trust that you were blessed by uh, the Word and by the fellowship of the saints. Uh, one announcement, um, Wednesday, August 25th is the next scheduled Women's Fellowship Night. And the video, The Dominion of God's Image Bearers from Ligonier Ministries, uh, their conference made in God's image, so you can sign up if you wish to attend. How do you sign up, Shanita, or is there a, an event? Okay, there'll be a sign-up sheet, so avail yourself of this, uh, ladies. So, Well, let's stand for a closing prayer and a benediction. Father, again, we are thankful for the eternal Word, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for all that He has done for us and all that the Father has done for us in love and all that the Spirit is doing for us. And we praise You for it. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.